This is an ABC podcast. The cost of food, housing and other essentials is still rising quickly. Prices have risen 7% in the last 12 months. The forecast $4.2 billion surplus would be the first in 15 years, but the government expects the budget to return to deficit in the following years. Inflation is expected to remain high this financial year. It means many households will continue to struggle to pay bills during this cost of living crisis. Inflation and the cost of living crisis that flows from inflation have become the underlying narrative of 2022 and 2023. For over a year, prices of goods and services have risen sharply and it has economists, the Reserve Bank and the government worried. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince. In this Rear Vision, understanding today's inflation and what, if anything, we can learn from past inflationary periods. Historically, inflation hasn't always been an issue, especially in societies that use gold and silver as a currency, because these materials were intrinsically valuable. Although their value did fluctuate, as Michael Bordeaux, Professor of Economics at Rutgers University, explains. The first inflation that people really got interested in was in the 16th century when the Spanish conquered the Americas and started to import gold and silver into Europe. And these became coined and then they led to a rise in prices in Spain and that spread to the rest of Europe. And we had another one in the 19th century when guess where gold was discovered in your country, Australia and in California. And that led to another inflation, which went on for about 15 years or so at about 2% per year. Things got a bit trickier as governments began printing their own paper money, especially when the value of that money wasn't always backed by gold or silver. By definition, if the value of money is fixed, there is no inflation. If there is a fixed exchange rate between paper money and metallic money, whether it's silver or gold. My name is Eric Monet. I'm a professor of economic history at the Paris School of Economics. Historically, it's been documented that when some countries moved from having a fixed exchange rate to gold and silver to fully fiat money-based system, indeed, in some cases, it created inflation. I mean, we know, for example, that China was one of the first, actually the first country to use paper money on a wide scale in the 11th century, actually stopped using this, this kind of paper money because of inflation. The first bank to permanently begin issuing banknotes was the Bank of England in 1695. The reason was to raise money for the funding of the war against France. The big ones are always associated with paper money that in the past were issued by governments fighting wars and they would print paper money as a way to pay for their war expenditures. The Civil War in the United States or the Seven Years' War in Sweden, the French Revolution, the suspension in Britain when Britain left the golden pound, there was inflation of 10% per year in the first decade of the 19th century. So, you know, and then World War I and World War II are associated with, with really high inflation. So generally, the, the big ones in the past were associated with wars. So there are at least two reasons why inflation is going to increase a lot during wars. So the first one is that there is a big uncertainty about the future. 
uncertainty about the, the supply chains. So there is a, a big difference between the supply and the demands. So this uncertainty has contributed a lot to the inflation during the wars, but also after the wars. So the second reason, the state had to spend a lot and used a lot of money printing. So fueled the economy with money. And as I said before, that there was a big difference between the big demand of the state, especially to fund military expenditures and so on, and the problem of supply, which is very much constrained during the wars because all the production is not functioning normally. I mean, this clearly contributed to very high inflation rates during the, the war times. Wars are linked to inflation because they create uncertainty, disrupt supply chains and lead to governments printing money. So before the 20th century, how did nations deal with periods of inflation that arose during or after a war? So before the 20th century, inflation were very much associated with the idea that there had been a break between the value of the currency, of the national currency, and the value of the metal, of gold and silver. So during those times, the idea was really to go back to a fixed parity between the national currency and the metallic standard. So one of the well-known examples was England after the Napoleonic Wars. So during the Napoleonic Wars, England has suspended the convertibility of its paper money, of, of its currency, into gold, and it created inflation, indeed, for the reason we have mentioned before, so uncertainty and money printing. And then the main objective of the British government was really to go back to the gold standard as soon as possible in order to stabilize the price level. So before the 19th century, there is this very clear association that in order to cut inflation, it's needed to go back to a gold standard or even sometimes to a silver standard. The gold standard was established in the United Kingdom in the early part of the 19th century. In the 1870s, it was adopted by Germany, France and the United States, with many other countries following. And for almost 60 years, it stabilised global trade. The gold standard was a nominal anchor. It anchored the price level. And there was a mechanism in place that once you peg to the gold standard, then there are forces at work that will tend to keep the price level constant. So then why did people lose faith in the gold standard if it had actually been quite a useful mechanism in terms of trying to control inflation for such a long time? Why were they prepared to get rid of it? Okay, so this goes back to the Great Depression. So the Great Depression starts in 1929 and 30, and the gold standard had one property whereby you could not, if you're really on the gold standard, you couldn't really follow expansionary monetary or fiscal policy. The gold standard was a very, was a straitjacket on policy. And John Maynard Keynes, who was a famous British economist at this time, he viewed the gold standard as a barbarous relic. And his solution to the Great Depression was expansionary fiscal and monetary policy. And you can't do that if you're on the gold standard. And so in a sense, the depression was so bad in so many countries that starting with Britain in 1931, and then the United States in 1933 and lots of other countries, they jettisoned the gold standard. But the connection between national currencies and gold wasn't completely given up. After the inflation created by World War II, the Bretton Woods system was established. After World War II, they went back to something called Bretton Woods, 
which was indirectly tied to gold because the U.S. dollar was the anchor of the Bretton Woods system and all countries pegged their currencies to the dollar, but the dollar was pegged to gold at the price of $35 an ounce. So the gold standard was thrown out in the Great Depression, and then we had World War II, and then came back, but not with a very, the anchor was a lot weaker because there was a belief in the post-war period that we should have full employment and that we should be using our fiscal tools and our monetary tools to maintain full employment. And so what happens in the 1960s is that this sort of Keynesian economics takes over the advanced countries and what's called the Phillips curve, which comes from New Zealand, was an argument that inflation is not as serious as unemployment. And what you want to do is maintain full employment. And if you get some inflation, it was not considered in the 60s as such a big problem. That's right. I mean, the, the big idea of, of the post-World War II period is that you need governments to produce economic growth, but also to support society to be a safety net, the birth of the welfare state. There was also the idea that if you want to have strong government policy, and if you want to have legitimacy in government intervention, you need to stabilize inflation. After World War II, there was indeed a very strong stabilization of inflation. In many countries, there were almost like 50% of inflation rate during the immediate war after World War II. And starting in the early 1950s, the inflation rate was much below that and stabilized around 3 to 4% on average. Australia's experience of inflation has been shaped by our commodity economy and by our wages arbitration system. The first significant period of inflation occurred in 1951, following a wool boom that coincided with the Korean War. Sydney wool brokers say the Bradford market has probably been influenced both by hardening prices in Australia and by the decision of the British Ministry of Materials to stockpile £40 million of clean wool bought in sterling countries. The context was already pretty high inflation in the late 40s at the outset of the 50s for various reasons, partly that transition after World War II. But really the big shock, 1950, 51 especially, was just enormous increases in wool prices. I think the wool price rose by something like eight times in a very short space of time. And wool at the time was by far the biggest export and a big chunk of Australian GDP. Michael Beggs, I'm a senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney and author of the book, Inflation in the Making of Australian Macroeconomic Policy, 1945 to 85. Inflation reached above 20% briefly around 1950-51. Part of the issue was that it had huge income distribution consequences because for the farmers, they suddenly had a huge windfall. But for everybody else, if their incomes didn't adjust, they were suddenly gonna take a big hit to their real incomes. But of course, one of the peculiarities of the Australian economy in the post-war period was the strong centralized bargaining, you know, the arbitration system. A really large proportion of the working population, 80% plus, basically had their wages determined by what happened at the arbitration courts. And there was a rule that had been in place for decades that wages would automatically be adjusted to consumer price inflation. So as soon as that took off, that broadened the wool boom inflation across the economy. And then, of course, as wages rose, that would feed price increases across the economy because wages are a big cost and a source of demand across the economy. And so very suddenly, 
the government economists became worried about domestic inflation and the wage price spiral. But all of a sudden, the wool price suddenly reversed. In 1951, wool prices crashed. And that left a big problem that I think played out and informed how macroeconomic policy was implemented in Australia. And the problem came because the exchange rate was fixed. So part of the settlement after World War II, the Bretton Woods International Monetary Settlement, most currencies would peg their currency to the US dollar or to the pound sterling, which would itself be pegged to the US dollar. But in order for governments to maintain that exchange rate peg, they had to have enough foreign exchange reserves. But as soon as the wool price plummeted, the Australian wage and price level was much higher than it was before the wool boom. And all of a sudden, exports were much less competitive. Industry within Australia had much more difficulty competing with imports and incomes were much higher. So the balance of payments went heavily into deficit and the Commonwealth Bank's foreign exchange reserves started to plummet. So just as sort of Keynesian macroeconomic policy was really beginning to be consciously implemented in the 50s, it was implemented for austerity and restraint to actually try and fight inflation. The most significant period of global peacetime inflation occurred in the late 1960s and 1970s. Known as the Great Inflation, it's often associated with the oil crisis of 1973. Michael Bordeaux believes it's Keynesian ideas about government intervention, economic stimulus and support for full employment that caused or at least exacerbated this period of inflation. So it starts at the end of the 60s. Inflation's picking up. There was a notion that was quite prominent back then that inflation was caused by cost push, aggressive labor unions and big, big business. Very similar to the stories we hear today about supply shocks. The people that believed in that and the policymakers at the time did thought that, okay, the way to deal with supply shocks is to put wage price controls on again. And they did in the 70s. The Brits started it in the 60s and the Americans followed. And the controls weren't as popular and they didn't work as well. And there was a lot of pushback against them. And so the thought was that monetary policy really couldn't do the job, that you needed the controls, and then you could use monetary policy to maintain full employment. But the controls didn't work. And what happened was that as the expansionary monetary policies continued and the fiscal policies, people saw prices rising and they began to expect that they would continue to rise. That's called expected inflation. And once that happens, it becomes very hard to stop it. And to really stop a rise in expected inflation, you have to follow a very, very tight monetary policy. When inflation starts to pick up in the early 70s, they follow tight money. What does that do? It leads to a recession, which rises unemployment. There's political pressure on the government and the central banks to ease off because of the unemployment. And when they do that, inflation shoots up again because the public understands that the central banks don't have the will to really tighten enough. And so you get this so-called ratchet effect. In the middle of all this, we have the oil price shocks. Eric Monet, however, doesn't believe it was just Keynesian policies that caused the 1970s great inflation. He says the role of business and companies rising prices to ensure their profits may have also played a role. To be honest, the sources of inflation in the 1970s 
and still not completely understood by economic historians. There are still some debate on whether this inflation was mostly fueled by fiscal and monetary policy or by disorganization of the economy. Some companies which have a monopoly power, and since they have a loss of productivity in order to maintain their profits, they are going to charge higher prices, which is especially true if energy prices are going up after the oil shocks. So there are still some competing views of the inflation of the 1970s. And I would say the, the debate is not solved. And it's a debate that we see reappearing again. I mean, and we have almost the same debate today on what are the sources of inflation, whether it's too large fiscal stimulus or whether this is more linked to a structural change in the economy linked to the labor market or to, to competition between companies. What is certain, according to Eric Monet, is that the inflationary period of the 1970s delegitimized the Keynesian idea of government intervention in the economy. What is certain is that in the 1970s, when inflation started to rise again up to 15, 20% a year during the 1970s, then this new wave of inflation was really seen as the testimony of the, the problems of the government interventions. So what happened in the 1970s is that inflation actually delegitimized government intervention. Government were no longer able to invest in the economy and to maintain stable inflation. The economic policy that emerged after the 1970s was that inflation could only be controlled by less government stimulus, less focus on unemployment, and the establishing of an inflation's target and using interest rates to ensure that target. The American story, which is well known, is that Jimmy Carter's president, and he decides to bring in Paul Volcker, who is a very distinguished central banker, to end the inflation. And Volcker knew the only way to end inflation was by very tight money for a long time. And he knew that would lead to a recession, a big recession. And he got the backing of the government. In the UK, it was a slightly different story. It starts with the IMF coming and the Brits following tight fiscal. Okay, but it really takes Margaret Thatcher to do this, hold the line. And the unions, of course, in Britain are fighting this. Then Thatcher bashes the unions, holds them down, and the Brits were able to end their great inflation in the early 80s. In the U.S. case, Volcker, by engineering a huge recession, as high as one we've ever had in the post-World War II period, he broke the back of inflationary expectations. And by the mid-80s, inflation was coming down to 4 or 5%. By the 90s, it was around 2%. And that was followed in all the advanced countries by a new policy strategy, which was to maintain credibility for low inflation. And the way they did that was by having an inflation target, which was set upon at 2%. And that's what they followed from the 80s through to the global financial crisis. In Australia in the 1970s, the Fraser government favoured this kind of monetary policy. But when Fraser lost power in 1983, the Hawke government began trying to stem inflation via the Wages Accord. Under Fraser, after Whitlam, that was the period of monetary targeting in Australia. This is the period where the monetarist solution was tried. But by the start of the 80s, inflation had started to come down. But then you had the recession, 1980-81, and it was inflation higher than ever, unemployment above 10%. And it was a real shock. And the Hawke government comes in 83 in, in the aftermath of that recession 
And yeah, they give that third alternative a go, the incomes policy alternative in the form of the accord. And like you say, originally the accord was an agreement between, first it was made between the ACTU, the unions and labor in opposition. And then when labor comes to power, it gets renegotiated. The employers get brought in to some extent. But originally wage restraint was part of an overall package. Originally it was supposed to include some prices controls, the use of the tax system and other mechanisms to try and restrain high incomes and property incomes as well as wages. And also the use of fiscal policy to sort of offset wages concessions. And of course, Medicare, to some extent, came out of this discussion as well, this idea of the social wage compensating for private wage restraint by giving people more public benefits. Superannuation also comes out of this. But in practice, a lot of the other aspects, the restraint of higher incomes, the restraint of property incomes, and the use of fiscal policy fell out of the accord in the course of the 80s, and it became much more about wage restraint. So the accord was very much a defensive strategy by labor right? at a time when unemployment was unprecedentedly high. It was successful in the sense that it restrained wages. You know, people argue perhaps unemployment was a little lower than it would otherwise have been, and same with inflation. But by the 90s, by 1990, Australia still had high inflation when other countries like the UK, the US had brought it under control. And then the recession broke out and it was very disheartening, right? Because all of a sudden, 91, you have unemployment shot right back up again in the so-called recession we had to have, as Keating put it. And I think from that point, the Keating government did deliberately allow unemployment to break the back of inflation. And that really was the beginning of counterinflation policy. Macroeconomic policy has been fairly stable since the 90s. But this policy came with a cost, unemployment and rising interest rates. And the interest rates affected not only individual borrowers, but also nations who were heavily indebted. Clearly, the restrictive monetary policy of Volcker and others managed to kill inflation, but at the cost of rising unemployment and at the cost of banking crisis. Always remember that the rise of interest rates in the United States, which was then followed by many other countries, not only created a period of major unemployment, but also created a lot of financial troubles. The public debt crisis of Latin American countries in the early 1980s, for example, is clearly due to this uh, increase in interest rates. And then also other banking crises, more domestic banking crises in the US. So there was a lot of cost to these inflation policies. I do think that it has had an influence on, on income distribution in the sense that the level of slack in the labor market affects different groups of wage earners very differently, right? Because some groups of workers are much more prone to unemployment than others. Professionals, people on relatively high labor incomes still tended to enjoy unemployment levels around 1% to 2%. But if you move down levels of skill of education, you know, laborers, for example, have tended to have much higher rates of unemployment, closer to 9%, 10%. Counteracting that is the vestigial remains of the arbitration systems, Fair Work Australia. In huge contrast to the post-war period, the award system now directly affects a much smaller proportion of the workforce, so 15 20% directly uh, covered by awards. And in the last 10 years, the people at the bottom are very dependent on what happens to awards. And because 
in the last 10 years at least, those have risen a little bit more than market wages or enterprise bargained wages. The people at the very bottom kept up a little bit more than people in the sort of lower middle range of the distribution. But in general, the whole setup has certainly does have distributional consequences. For almost 30 years, tight monetary policies have controlled inflation. But since the global financial crisis of 2008, things have changed dramatically. Very slow economic growth, extremely low interest rates, wage stagnation, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. According to Michael Bordeaux, it was the expansionary policies after the GFC and during the pandemic, as well as attempts to control unemployment, that have led to the current levels of inflation. The policies that the US and others followed to get out of the great financial crisis, that was one issue. And the other issue is that the rising inequality or the perception of rising inequality has led them to attach more importance to unemployment and to put that first. The biggest game changer, of course, was the pandemic. And the pandemic came along and we'd been in a period where we were worried about inflation being below the target and we were worried about the labor market not being as full as it should to this huge pandemic, which was dealt with by extremely expansionary fiscal policy and extremely accommodative monetary policy like quantitative easing and keeping interest rates at zero. This is the case in all the advanced countries. And here we are at 8.6% inflation in the United States and the Fed now doing very much what Volcker did in the late 70s and early 80s, which is tight money, which is going to create a recession and the stock market's tanking because they understand this. Eric Monet argues that the current inflationary period is the result of three things. A rise in the wages of workers in countries that export goods, wage stagnation in developed nations, and the accumulation of savings due to the pandemic. Three factors. The first, the rise of wages in many of the economy that exports cheap goods to Europe and the US. In China, wages have been rising. And so the goods are, are more expensive. The second factor is really this disconnect between the productivity and the, and the wages. The real wages did not increase as much as productivity gain, meaning that for many workers, their real wage was extremely low. And the pandemic was a shock that gave this worker the ability to ask for higher wages. And the last factor, there have been a lot of savings accumulated during the pandemics, and afterwards, people want to consume more. And that created a shock in demand that was not met by supply. Economists throughout history have shifted policy settings with each new bout of inflation. We've had the gold standard, the Bretton Woods Agreement, the Keynesian ideas about government stimulus, and post-1970s, a restricted monetary policy and inflation targets. But will these monetary policies work this time around? At the moment, there's certainly no sign that the basic policy framework is going to change. So if inflation does come back down in the next year or so, then I think things will go on as normal. But at the same time, there's been many cases in history where macroeconomists and policymakers have concluded they finally got it right, the post-war period especially, and then the period in the 90s and since, 
And they they haven't exactly been wrong, right? I think they've had the policy that's worked. It's managed its tensions, managed the contradictions of the time. But eventually things change, structures change, and what worked for a long time stops working. Things have very much changed in the monetary side of things in the last couple of decades. It is possible. It certainly will happen one day. Whether we're about to see it now or not, I don't think we can know yet. Michael Beggs, author of Inflation and the Making of Australia's Macroeconomic Policy, 1945-85. to My other guests, Eric Monet, Professor of Economic History at the Paris School of Economics, and Michael Bordeaux, Professor of Economics at Rutgers University. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.